right, welcome back to the Act Two Podcast, a podcast for the real-life working screenwriter. I'm Tasha Hugh. And I am Josh Hallman. As a reminder, we have a new screenwriting Twitter, Act Two Writers. So follow us there for screenwriting and industry news and updates and advice and weird musings about this industry. Go there for that. But yeah. if you'd rather DM us, you can. We get a lot of questions and topic suggestions, which we really appreciate. And you can do that at act2writers at gmail.com, which is all spelled out, or on our Instagram at act2writers. I'm also on Instagram at storythursday or on Twitter at Tasha3.0. And I'm on Twitter at Joshua Hallman and Instagram, Josh Hallman. Can I just say why this is like a huge episode for us? Yeah, go ahead. I hate it, but go ahead. We're recording <laughs> video now that we're going to be posting of us. We're moving into the future. From this. Yeah, we're 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 like seven years behind, but we're there. <laughs> so, you know, you're gonna we're, you'll see some videos of us now. So you know what we look and like. And I apologize ahead of time. Anyways. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, let's jump into this week in writing. All right, so last week we talked about reps, agents, mm -hmm. uh, what a good relationship looks like. And then afterwards I was like, did I miss anything? Did I fail? <laughs> what did, how did that episode go? And one thing that I thought of as just sort of an afterthought that I wanted to bring up now that I think uh, really great agents or managers will do is they will both make the tough calls for you and like be the bad guy if you need them to. And they'll also tell you to put your big girl pants on or boy mm. pants on. So to, to talk about kind of what that exactly means, let's say you started engaging with a producer on a project and you, yeah. you do like it. It's, it's great. It's right up your alley. You need a job. This is going to be fun. You like this person. But then suddenly something else comes along that's like your dream or it's just closer to getting done. Whatever the case might be, you wanna go do that thing instead, but you've already engaged with this other producer. Now you don't have time to keep engaging with them. What do you do? That is a terrible phone call to have to make to be like, sorry, I wasted your time, but I wanna go do this other thing. Sometimes you can punt that to your rep <laughs> and have them make the call for you so that you can preserve that relationship with the producer and the beautiful thing about it is that agents are kind of this, even though they're on your team, they're kind of this just objective person who can make calls and sort of end a relationship for you, basically, where they can say like, I'm so sorry, Tasha's really busy, Josh is really busy, he can't work on this thing anymore, his availability just got too crazy, but he loves you and he loves working with you, and I hope you guys can find something in the future. I actually have no idea how this phone call goes, but it's something like that. And the reason why I know it's something like that is because every time that has happened to me where my agent has actually been the bad guy for me, I've been able to still contact that producer, like the day later that that happens or later in that day and say, I'm so sorry this happened. I really want to work with you on something else. And they're like, that's totally great. No worries at all. Like, I totally understand. So they don't hate me, which is Whoa. which is sort of a big, big reason why uh, like reps need to step in at that point sometimes is to, to, to make it so you can preserve that relationship, but also do the thing you need to do. They don't hate you. On, through email. Through email. But when they hit send, they're like, Fuck you. <laughs> <laughs> Shit. 
Well, that's something I just love about this industry and certain industries is when you just know that people are like lying to you or you know you're kind of I clearly of don't aside. know that. I think they still like me. <laughs> well, like when a, no, I mean when a producer knows that something happened and they're like you know like if it's if you get passed on for instance and people are like we really liked it, but and it's like okay, but you didn't like it because otherwise yeah, you, you, you would have like you, you would have we would be working together. So, it's just an interesting like back and forth, but you really need that positive reinforcement from people when uh, you're like, I really want to work with you on something. You're like, oh, okay, great, yeah. great, great. Yeah, it does feel like a, a two-sided, two-way lie, I guess. <laughs> oh, it's amazing. Yeah. The flip side of the kind of being a bad guy for you that reps can do is they can mm -hmm. also tell you to just be a man or woman up and go do the thing, which my manager definitely does. <laughs> yeah. Sometimes my agents, but mostly my manager, bless her, she will be like, Tasha, you need to make that phone call. Be like, really? But can you make it? She, no, Tasha, that has to come from you. Just yeah. go do it. You're going to have to make hard choices in your career. Let's start here. And it sucks, but it's like a mom being like, you got to take the hard knocks. <laughs> you can yeah. learn to get back up. But no, it's something you just have to. It, and it's weird that people have an aversion to doing this because it benefits you. And I'm not saying I don't have this. I've, I'm in the same place where I'm like, you get nervous about making certain calls and but you, you do it because it, it helps you and you're doing it for your own sake, yet you're still a little worried to do it. I mean, I hate disappointing people. I think that's a, a big fear that comes up for me. Oh, yeah. if, if it's a situation like what we're talking about, I just hate it so much. I don't want people thinking ill of me. No. Yeah, I, I understand that. You just have to do it. You have to do it. It's your life. You could be dead tomorrow and you're going to regret not calling that person. I don't think that's the thing I'll regret if I was dead I tomorrow. bet it fucking will be. <laughs> Why didn't I make that call to the producer? <laughs> Why did I not tell him I didn't want to work with him? <laughs> All right, so that was just one this week in writing that came up for me. I have one. I think I have a good one. So I, I've been writing this script for what seems like 15 years. And there's this one portion in the first act where... I basically needed to trim some pages and my character's dealing with some trauma. And I'm like, how, how can I, like, what do I need to do here? And I've been resisting from the get-go of writing this script. I'm like, I'm not going to have a scene with a therapist because uh, uh -huh. therapy and like voiceovers, they kind of go hand in hand. Like when done well, it's great. But when done poorly, you're like, what a fucking cop-out. So in the back of my head, this entire time, I've been like, this is going to be a cop-out. This is going to be a huge cop-out. A cop-out because it's just a big exposition dump? Yeah, because, yeah. Even, even if the character requires therapy, that still feels like I should require, or I should be able to uh, figure out a more creative way around this. Whether it be, let's just say, yeah. you know, I, this isn't what I did, but... If you are a writer and you're thinking of having a therapy scene, you, you know, maybe you can talk to a friend who can act as the therapist or you can make it clever in a grocery store or a dog or a fucking stranger or whatever. There's creative ways to get around this. To dramatize this person's to, issue, yeah. To dramatize. Well, Tasha, those creative juices just weren't flowing <laughs> for the last 15 to 20 years. So, so I, um, I wrote a therapy scene. And I was so reluctant. And I talked to our good friend, 
one Alex Sabetti about this because I just knew he would have some great some thoughts on it. Mm-hmm. And he gave me some really great advice. And he said to make sure it's just not exposition. He was like, if you're going to do a therapy scene, and then he had a little caveat and said, you don't need to do a therapy scene, by the way. Mm-hmm. But I was like, I'm doing it. I'm fucking in already. He's like, if you do it, just make sure you make a meal out of it. And so we started to talk about that. And he was like, for instance, let's say your therapist says, you know, you've been closed off. Why don't you go and try to talk to somebody? Then like that has to pay off later in the script. Mm. Somehow, some way, whatever the therapist says as advice uh, pays off. And I thought that was kind of a creative way to enhance these scenes that are considered cop-outs at times. That's a really great idea. Yeah. Because then, yeah, once you see the payoff, you're like, oh, it wasn't an exposition dump. It, there was a purpose to it. Right. My but, advice would have been very different, but I like his a lot. Let, let's hear your advice. Don't do it. Well, so, so I don't know if you ever saw that HBO series In Treatment that was really good, but it was an hour-long show that was literally just two people – talking therapist and patient and it was riveting <laughs> and it, i think it was uh, a narrative or this is like unscripted no scripted yeah no, scripted what a narrative jesus excuse me yeah, yeah scripted or yeah um and i think why it was so riveting was because so much of the drama was from what was being unsaid than what was actually being said and it was seeing how the character moved on the couch how they were emoting to certain things or mm. not emoting to certain things so so much of it could have just been a basic therapy session of a lot of information but it ended up being extremely complex with like an actual three-act structure because of all of the unspoken things that were going on so i feel like that's another way to make it really interesting is have your character act kind of you know act out her issues in the actual therapy session yeah also great advice when you read scenes like that like if you see therapy in in an act one are, are you like, this is a cop-out. This is exposition. I actually love when two characters are talking back and forth for the very reason that in-treatment exists is because mm. what's what's going on in the blank space that's not being spoken about is so fun. As an audience member, I, I like lean in because I, I, I feel like I'm now engaging with the material more. But if it becomes just two people in a room talking to each other, then that's I'm no longer engaged in that situation. Yeah. So, meh. But what you said also, or what Sabetti, I guess, said was also really interesting was giving your character a task in the therapy session. What if you, like, cut out at that moment and, like, saw her do it, like, dramatize the the task she's been given mm, by the therapist yeah. as, like, the completion of the therapy session? Yeah. As Sabetti called it, an assignment. An assignment. Because I guess therapists give assignments. He must be in therapy. <laughs> Well, what did you end up doing? Do you like it? Do you like what you came up with? Do you think it solved the problem? I do, actually. That's amazing. I put it in, and, well, just because it's different, and I've now, like, everything has changed. It's just nice to see something different, and it honestly cuts a big chunk. A a big issue that I was having was I was trying to get to the second act a little faster, and it was my first act was kind of dragging out, but I was, like, had all these moments where I was like, well, this is important. This is important. This person has no friends. Who's she going to talk to? Like all these weird things that were coming up and the therapy helped. 
That's great. I can see it working in your script for sure. Oh, really? Yeah, well, because you're why right. Why didn't you she tell has... me 18 well, I mean, months I... ago? Because my first choice would always be to <laughs> dramatize it. And I thought you dramatized it really well in Act 1. But uh... Where's my drink? I need a drink. <laughs> and I just want to say one last thing. I know people shit on voiceover. I've actually never used voiceover, but I love when voiceover is done correctly. Like, I think oh, it's me too. great. I never bump on it at all if I ever read a script. Yeah, like, that ever. applies to flashbacks too. I usually avoid them, but when they're done, I really enjoy it. Yeah. When done too. well. My next This Week in Writing comes yeah. from an actual question that we got oh. from oh. a couple people, oh. actually, which is, a really great question, which is, if you're outside the United States, how do you get a writing-related job? And kind of what can you expect from that process? And the bad news is I don't fully know the answer, but I have some suggestions. And also, it is really hard if you're not in the U.S. It's just It just makes it a bit harder than those who are already here kind of in this network. But the good yeah. news is it is easier than ever than like literally ever since even we were coming up to make that transition to the writing world or into the industry at least. Because now we have the interwebs and all kinds of resources that you can find that just weren't there even a few years ago. But I'll say, and I'll kind of go through the list of the things that I know of. The first is actually one that I did use when I was coming up, which is entertainmentcareers.net. And what that is is just a massive list of all the jobs in entertainment in Los Angeles, from catering to production assistant to music. Even there are writing assistant jobs on there, which is why I signed up for the email list. So I would definitely get on there. It is legit. I have used it. I know other people who have. So check that one out and just kind of always have that going on in your email mm. box in the background. Another thing is the UTA job list, which kind of historically and famously has been this really secretive list that only certain people who are already in the industry get in their email box. And what it is is a list of all the prime entry-level jobs in Hollywood that are open that week. I think it's literally a weekly list. If it's not weekly, it's monthly. And yeah. they're usually assistant jobs for a producer or an agent, almost never for writers, but... I think as Josh and I talk about a lot on this podcast, an assistant job to any of those people is definitely a legitimate path to becoming a professional screenwriter. And I think is a fantastic place to start learning about the industry and about making connections. And I would say you typically are expected to spend about a year in an assistant job. And after that, on average, a good boss will typically kind of meet with you and say, all right, what do you want to do? I know you don't want to be assistant forever. How can I help you get to the next step? And, you know, the worst case scenario, you get this stable job in an industry talking to real industry people who you want to make relationships with if you want to be a screenwriter anyways. I would say the problem with the UTA job list is that it's notoriously hard to get. It's kind of one of those catch-22 things where you have to know someone who gets the list or can get you the list in order to get yeah. the list. <laughs> and usually you'll find it passing around the assistant pools. So assistants will pass it on to their friends, et cetera. So if you know even one person in the industry, just ask them if they have the most updated UTA job list or if they can get it for you. And that can be a big help. And then kind of the last big avenue to explore would be Twitter. And it may sound weird, but Twitter has become, I think, especially 
after the WGA writers had to fire their agents. And then with the pandemic going on, it's become a real genuine place for writers to find jobs and for creators, you know, showrunners or producers to look for writers. I mean, we're on screenwriting Twitter all the time with our Act Two Writers Twitter handle, and we see all the time of producers, showrunners reaching out and just being like, hey, who has a great script this week that they want to send me? Or, hey, those of you who applied to the uh, Austin Film Festival, send me your scripts. So like that legitimately happens. And I will tell you one real life story where this was a success, where Troy, my writer's assistant on Tomb Raider, who was also our writer's assistant on the Witcher prequel, Blood Origin. So he got his meeting with the Blood Origin showrunner because of a Twitter account called Hollywood Here. So Hollywood Here, H-E-R-E, is dedicated to what they call hashtag raise the percentage, where they are trying to get writers with diverse backgrounds or interesting stories in front of creators that they might not otherwise see. And Troy, please correct me if I'm wrong, but I think kind of what happened was that Hollywood Here posted about Troy and his pilot script, which he had out there on, you know, various uh, contests, I think, and maybe even the blacklist, but it was out there. And so Hollywood Here read it and they posted about it. And then a writer from Witcher saw that post and asked to read the pilot. And then after reading his pilot, then posted about how great it was. Wow. And because she was Twitter friends with another fellow Witcher writer, the showrunner of Blood Origin, he saw that tweet, then asked to read that pilot from her, loved it, set up a meeting with Troy, whom he, of course, promptly hired because he's awesome. So there are a lot of avenues out there. Troy, let's get him on the <laughs> podcast right now. I'll call him up. We can talk about his his uh, origin story. <laughs> I'm pumped. <laughs> so, yeah, there, there are a lot of fantastic resources, Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, anywhere else. If you know of any, please let us know because we'd like to kind of, you know, throw that out into the universe and let people know about them. You can tweet them at act2writers or email us at act2writers at gmail.com. Yeah. I, I, I just want to say I've known a few people from Canada. I don't know. Uh, I mean, this was like the extent of out of the country that I knew who got over here uh, with an uh, entertainment job. And the a friend of mine he would make videos and so he was a writer or he is a writer but he would also make videos he would post them online and that got him a job i think through funny or die and then funny well, or die yeah. ended up bringing him over here so if you're if you do have another skill set like editing or something like that i you know cast the web and or the net and get out and so you can get a job in the states yeah it's because it's amazing internet's it's amazing, amazing here in los angeles <laughs> yeah <laughs> I love it. I don't know why I said that. I love Los Angeles. <laughs> I know you do. So much. Are we done with This Week in Writing? Can we move on to the meet? Or do you have another one? There is one more This Week in Writing. And it is something we need to clear up. It is a very <laughs> important story. It pertains to Tasha and her life and her world. And my lies. <laughs> last week, Tasha, on the last episode, said that she told a story of how she met her manager. Which basically, uh, you could almost track back her first manager to uh, her, you know, meeting her fiance today. Maybe <laughs> that's not true. <laughs> Just, that's how important this meeting was. But we, so Tasha, you know, said she met her manager through this one guy, who's a little weird. And there was this other story where it was like maybe it came from our friend Dave Levinson. Mm. 
and we couldn't figure it out. Well, Dave ends up listening to the podcast, and he said, Tasha, the fuck? None of those things you said happened. (laughs) (laughs) That's not what happened. I introduced you to your very first manager, and Tasha was resistant. She said, no, are you sure? Are you sure? And then like two minutes later, Dave sends the receipts. (laughs) He sent the emails of how it all went down. So Tasha, once and for all, we need to clear up. Dave introduced you to Cousin Pete. I have no memory of that. My memory is a weird guy in a hiking group, and I have repeated this lie. But you know what? This is not the first time I have lied about history. I used to work at the Paul Revere house. This is like therapy session here. I used to work at the Paul Revere house. So excited. (laughs) When I I lived in Boston, because I was a big history nerd, and it was a great job. I loved it. But as part of the job, you stand in the different rooms within Paul Revere's house and you tell tourists who come through like what happened in this room, what all the different pieces of furniture are, et cetera. And you engage Mm -hmm. them with the history. (laughs) And I had watched an episode of West Wing wherein a character talks about a desk that's in West Wing as coming from like a pirate ship and blah, blah, blah. Like he tells this whole story about this desk that's really exciting. And I, for some reason, internalized that and thought that I'd read that somewhere. And so there are many tourists out there in the world right now who believe that Paul Revere's desk in the upstairs bedroom comes from a pirate ship. Oh, shit. Is <laughs> the exact reiterated story from West Wing because I am a terrible person who mixes <laughs> truth with lies. So this, I think, is probably what has happened here in the case of the hiker story where I've just made it my reality. And the truth is that Dave just sent an email <laughs> and introduced wow. me to Cousin Pete. On another episode, we're going to have to just talk about your time in the Paul Revere house. <laughs> that sounds like a, a contained, like, action Tasha story, <laughs> like or like a rom-com or something. Probably more like a rom-com. Yeah. Yeah. And just for the record, I was joking about tracing back meeting Cousin Pete to your fiancé now. <laughs> <laughs> you mean as, like, having the same importance? No, I mean, like, you meet Cousin Pete. Cousin Pete introduces you oh. to someone else. That someone else meets to, to someone else, and then effect. you meet Paul. Yeah, the, the butterfly effect. It That's could what be. It is. Who knows? Oh, God. Anyway, moving on. I'm done. All right. <laughs> this week, we are talking about how to develop your story using note cards. And I don't know why I said it that dramatically, because it doesn't sound that exciting. But I think it's exciting. <laughs> Today. We're going to be drinking water. (laughs) I think note cards are important, at least as a topic. I think it's a great way to map out your story. And I think from a career standpoint, if you work in TV, this is very much how TV development works in the writer's room. So I think if you at least know how to use note cards effectively, you will be prepared. Also, I want to say that as someone who resisted note cards for a really long time, because it felt like an extra step for me. I am now a huge fan of the note cards. Why? Why did you resist? Because it was like, I think I was just itching to get to the script. Like if I have Mm. an outline, why the fuck do I need note cards? Or if I kind of know what it looks like, why do I need note cards? I can just write an outline. It's just felt like an extra step because it takes a long time. You have to hand write these note cards. It's a whole thing. You have to find the pins. You have to get like color codes. Yeah, you got to tape them up on your wall it's a thing yeah yeah so i resisted them for a long time and we'll talk about sort of my turning point of when i decided they were the greatest thing to ever exist 
Mm. But even then, I still wouldn't say I do it every single time I break a story. Do I do it most of the time? Yes. And I think we'll talk about, too, when we do it, because I think you and I actually maybe do it at different times in our process. Yeah. So that will be interesting. Can't wait. <laughs> this is another one of those, like, the organized episode where it's like, <laughs> it's, like a, it's a stupid topic, but it's really important. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, uh, note cards can lead to really great ideas. It's great. They're they're fantastic. It's a really great tool to have in your arsenal in terms of breaking your own stories. All right, let's start with the basics. Yeah. I'm curious, when you say you use note cards, what do you literally mean? I have note cards sitting next to me at all times. These are my fucking note cards. Are they but, three by fives? What are they? I can't see. Yeah, they are three by fives. And uh, right behind me, I have a cork board. And I have color-coded note cards that I, you know, oh, you have, have separated. In, and you also have, like, pink and I have and green, blue pink, and... and orange. Ooh, all right, all right. Yeah, for Act 1, Act 2, Act 3. It's beautiful. Yeah. Yeah, it is beautiful. I love it. It needs to be, like, completely straight, too, in columns. Oh, if yeah. it's oh, If it's scattered, I'm, I'm not even – I might as well just – Get out of here. Burn the entire house down. What do you use? I use – white index cards here i'm gonna do my pile since you did yours yeah. oxford here's mine um, i have, have the same ones oh they have lines on one yeah. side and then just blank on the other which i like it that way a bit is this is this episode sponsored by oxford <laughs> it might be. we'll reach out that's what i use and i always use three by fives which josh why do we use such small cards because <laughs> they're bigger ones exist i I don't know. It just feels right. <laughs> it does feel right. And I think, too, that the answer sort of comes from this screenwriting rule or theory, which tell me if you've heard this or not. But there's this idea that if you cannot fit your idea for the scene on a three by five note card, then your idea is too complex and you need mm. to simplify it. I, I think I believe that. It's honestly a rule or theory that um, when I first started writing... I hated it because I thought I was just so brilliant and I have so many nuanced ideas going on in a single scene that I cannot be contained by a three by five card. Yeah. But the truth is, no matter how brilliant you are, if you can't sum up those nuanced ideas on a single card, then the scene is probably doing way too much stuff and is probably not going to work. Wow. That's my, I, I back the theory now. I'm a believer. Yeah, no, I mean, I've definitely found when, you know, when you're filling out a note card and you're just scribbling and it just like becomes completely filled with just ideas and you're like, what the, this is, this scene doesn't work. <laughs> this is a single so scene. I, I feel like each, all that. <laughs> no, each note card needs to have just one kind of general idea in, in my world, at least that's how my, when I look at it, it needs to look pretty. Otherwise yeah. I can't have the note card on the wall. Yeah. It messes with my brain too, if it's not pretty can't believe we're talking about this it's clearly important <laughs> i would say i also have a whiteboard which is behind me at home mm -hmm. and it's magnetic which i love it's like the my greatest possession so i can now use magnetic index cards which are also three by five which i love too because you can just like throw it up and it's very satisfying like slap when it hits the thing but yeah really yeah it's great you should get one oh. all right so stepping back from literally what are note cards uh why do we use them why do I use them? Why do you use yeah. them? Do we have different why? reasons why we use them? Maybe. All right. Let me, I'm just going to jump into this. Yeah. So this is my process. 
I usually write out my outline on my computer. And then I will take that outline, I'd say 80% of the time, and then I will start making note cards of each kind of beat that I put in my outline. And I, I like to take a step back and look at it and say, okay, this there's too much going on in act one, there's not enough going on in act three, act two is not making any sense, and it almost is a map that you can stare at. It's a map, for me at least. Yeah, that's the big one for me is a Word document is vertical and a computer is only yay big, but note cards you can tape to a wall. You can, I've definitely laid them out on the floor before just to stand above it and look at it. And you're right, like you can see like, oh shit, I have five scenes in act one, but I have 50 in act two. Something pacing wise is not right, um, which you maybe didn't realize for some reason in your outline form. So yeah, I think seeing your entire story at a glance makes a huge difference in how you look at your story. And I know for me anyways, like new things are always popping up when I can see it from like yeah. that bird's eye perspective. Totally. We, I would just recently, I've been working with uh, my friend Kai on a project I went to his place and we were just putting note cards on the wall and it was Sounds just amazing. so refreshing. And I, and I think they're still there. I have pictures of it because I was documenting our process yeah. and one day I might post a couple of these pictures. I love this idea. Approval. Please do. Yeah. That what you just described, that moment of creation with another person was sort of my turning point for when I was like, yes, I have to do note cards and I was a fool to never do them before. Can I do a small story? I mean, I'd be offended if you didn't. Okay. <laughs> All right. So, okay, going back doo -doo 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 to like a few years ago, <laughs> I was writing this pilot script. At this point, it had been like years that I had been working on this thing. And at some point in the process, I think early on, I did use note cards because I was stuck on my outline, like you said, and I needed some kind of help. But they sort of didn't really do very much, and I kind of threw them away or forgot about them. But then... I got this showrunner attached to my pilot, and she was this very experienced writer, wrote some really iconic movies, which is old to just say that she knew what she was doing. And she said to me, like, the first thing that, like, assignment that she gave me basically was write out each scene on a note card, and then we'll go through them. So I did that. I used a different color for each main character featured in that scene rather than different colored cards, which I like much better. Now, in this particular pilot, I kind of had four main characters. So every time we cut to that character, the scene is going to be through their point of view, and the scene is going to be primarily about what's going on with them. So it was easy for me to be like, okay, this character is blue, and this character is green, and every time they show up, it's blue or it's green. So that's kind of how I did it. And then we stood around this big conference room table and I laid out all the cards in order of how they appeared in the pilot. And I put a little number in the corner of what scene it was so it was easy to track. Now at this point, like I said, I already had written the pilot. So I just copied the scenes into or like summarized the scenes into these three by five cards. And then we're like standing over this script and I feel like I'm in CSI or something and they were like examining a crime scene together the way we're looking at this thing. And I'm suddenly extremely insecure because now in this format with all these color codes, I'm starting to notice like, oh shit, there's a lot of green over here in this section and not a lot of green over here in the back half, which is not good. Mm. That's not good pacing, right? And I kind of watched my showrunner kind of like, in a beautiful mind just start moving the cards around and in like five minutes she'd restructured a good chunk of the pilot wow and now the pacing suddenly made sense 
And not only that, but we could also see clearly that there were scenes that were missing that like we didn't even realize we needed. But now we knew like, oh, we need a transitional scene here because we're missing the emotional connection between these moments. If we have this connectional scene, it will make a huge difference in the audience understanding what's going on. So turning point. That's an awesome story. It, I mean, it sounds like the moments were driven from character because you color code them from different characters, right? So if, if it's like, oh, there's a big chunk of green over here. Melissa's over here too much. And then you move Melissa over to the other side. Did you have to, rest you had to restructure those scenes obviously, right? But it's like, let's, we just need this character to kind of appear here a little sooner, more yeah. often. I think in particular, if I recall, it was a lot of Melissa in sort of the first act of the show and missing a big chunk in the second act and then reappearing in the third act of the episode. So I was like, well, mm. we can't, she was, she's our main character. She can't be missing from the, the middle of, of the thing. And the reason why I wrote it and didn't realize it, I think was because in my head, so much is going on with the other characters that it feels yeah. really exciting, even though we're in act two without Melissa. But once we see it on the conference table, it's like, yeah, you can't get away with your main character only being in the first act and the third act. And it was as she was doing her beautiful mind thing and moving things around, it didn't end up being that I had to rewrite these scenes, which is what was so interesting. You can almost just plunk them into a different place. And that's the beauty of cards is you can literally just pick one up, put it over here and shuffle them around. And it's super easy. More, it's, it was more like I had to find some new scenes to transition into, if that makes sense. Which yeah. again, like it made everything so much better. I like that method. I like the character color coding. Yeah, it's so, so helpful. I wonder if that's more helpful in TV than it is in features. I mean, I imagine in features, the same exact issue would arise, right? You yeah. just see that your character is missing from over here or, yeah. I mean, like in your script, for instance, it's like Melissa ends up pairing up with someone and but the pair up doesn't happen until mm, like halfway yeah. through the movie it's like ah that's too late but i only yeah. see it then because i knew i had to set everything up and the setup was really important but when you take a step back you're like well maybe i need a therapy session to to tighten up the, the setup so that i can bring this buddy stuff in a bit earlier yeah see no cards are important this is an important topic no it is i it really is i mean we're breaking this shit down all right, so you mentioned that you do an outline first, and then 80% of the time you'll translate that outline to note cards. Can you kind of talk about why you do that and then what it looks like a little bit? Yeah, I mean, I do it just because I've never written an outline where I can just, uh, on my, you know, on my uh, Word doc and just been like, this is it. I can just take this and put it into my script. Even though I go back to that, and that's what I use when I'm writing the script, for some odd reason, I just know that I'm always missing something. It's just, this goes back to what you were saying. You just need that bird's eye view. Mm -hmm. And then, and what was the second question? What it kind of looks like? Yeah. Yeah. It just, it's like, you know, fun in my opening, you know, John's chasing Ethan Hunt and uh, John gets away with the rabbit's foot. You know, it's like opening. That's it. Boom. Next scene. Ethan connects with his wife. Boom. Next scene. And, you know, I'm just taking from my outline and putting that into the note cards. So not word for word though, right? Yeah, just big picture stuff. Mm -hmm. And then I can kind of use the note cards and outline in tandem where it's like, oh, okay, this is what happens and I know it's in my computer, so I'm gonna look at that. Mm -hmm. Which one do you do first? 
Yeah, my instinct is always to do a Word document outline first. And I think maybe it's because my first drafts of anything are going to be a bit messy. They're not going to fit on a 3x5 note card. So having it in a Word document, it helps me just sort of spill out all my thoughts. And then I'll use the note cards to sort of pick up the pieces, I guess, or trim things where they need to go and make me realize this scene is totally superfluous. That happens to me a lot when I do note cards. It's like, oh, these two scenes are basically doing the same thing. I can combine them or I can just get rid of this one. But I don't know that in my outline when it's just my original brain spill. I can yeah. only know that when I see it in, in note card form. So yeah, for me, it's very much a honing in yeah. on something. And sometimes I actually do it on a script I've already written. In the case of the pilot is a really great example where... I've written this script, but like the structure is just not working for some reason, or this character is not building properly. Something is wrong and I, it's bugging me and I can't get it right. So I'll whip out the note cards, do a quick rundown, throw it up on the board or throw it on the ground. And that helps me see what's actually going on in this big picture. And um, I can usually find the problem from there. So it's, yeah. it's almost like a troubleshooting thing sometimes too. 100%. I wonder if there's anyone who works better through outline rather than note cards. There has to be. Like so who doesn't, sure. someone who doesn't need a bird's eye view. I bet that if they did get a bird's eye view though, they'd be so relieved. <laughs> hey buddy, you're wrong. You're doing it wrong. Here's some note cards. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, I also find, and this is getting to the nitty, really nitty gritty, but I've seen some people just copy, paste, or like print out their outline and then like literally paste it onto their note card and put it up. And to me, I don't like that because the process of rewriting the summary of the scene onto the card is its own part of the writing process. Yeah. So like I, it, it helps me to be like, John meets up with Ethan Hunt and takes the rabbit foot. Because in my outline, in my document, it might be like, John meets up with Ethan Hunt. They get in this really big fight. They talk about love. They go get fish. And then they also somehow get the rabbit's foot. But when I do the note card, I'm like, no, the only purpose of the scene is the rabbit's foot. I can cut a lot of this fish eating stuff and just yeah. get to the point. It's amazing how important it seems like the fish eating scenes are. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it's weird, isn't it? It shows character. It shows character. And you're like... You don't need it. You just it's don't brilliant. Need it. You just don't understand. Yeah, you haven't figured it out yet. I'm two steps ahead. <laughs> yeah, so that's another just small bit of that process that I like. All right, cutting to television, because you mentioned that maybe this is more of a TV thing than a feature thing. I yeah. think we both agree it's a both thing. But, and just speaking about at the top, I said that this is kind of a career move is to understand note cards and that i think is important because as we find out when we get jobs in tv and as we talked about in our daily life of a tv writer with senor monty bennett usually a writer's room will start with like a two-week blue sky period is what they call it which is another term just for like the brainstorming phase and that for me is like and i think for josh too it's when we throw stuff up on a word document right that's the the basic equivalent of for at home but once yeah. that blue sky period is done in a writer's room it's now time to put things down on note cards which is like scene one how do we open the episode all right that's scene one okay great now let's move on to scene two and we move kind of laterally like that and we literally we literally will plot out every single scene of the show and each new scene will be a different note card now sometimes you won't know what scene two is 
So you kind of skip it. You just put a little note card there that's blank in the spot and you know you got to get back to it. But you do know that somewhere in the back half of the episode, you want character A and character B to betray each other. So like you put that up as somewhere in the back half. Mm-hmm. And that just visually, you can see it there. It's staring at you in the back half. You know you have to build to it. And that's really, really helpful. And I think if you're in a physical room, which Monty was able to speak to more than I, because I've only been in virtual rooms, but when you're in a physical room, it may just look like writing words on a whiteboard, but it's the same idea. They use different colors to represent different characters. um, And it's the same exact kind of methodology of note cards. It's just words. But I think Mm -hmm. where note cards come in handy is you can literally just take off the tape from the board, remove the card and just move it physically over Um, rather than have to erase and rewrite, which I know that sounds dumb, but it's all part of the process is to move things quickly and and just like have things very tangible. And I think something that writer's rooms do do is they do have the magnetic note cards that I use as well to allow them that freedom of movement. And yeah, that's kind of what it looks like for TV. And, And I think too, because TV rooms are constantly brainstorming episodes in a very quick fashion for a week or two at a time on a single episode what your first blush of note cards is going to look like for the structure of that episode is probably going to change i almost feel like there's never a time where you brainstorm an episode and the cards are exactly where you put them that first day you're probably moving them around and you need cards to do that and there's just so much freedom this is like a nerdy writer thing but it like feels so great to be able to just move cards around (laughs) no it does it it feels amazing and also you're gonna like this is i have a stack of note cards i don't know if you ever find like old cards that you've been Mm -hmm. using that um you look through them you're like oh that was a good idea that was a good idea and it it, like sparks old things and it's kind of the equivalent to the graveyard draft that we talked about that's interesting it's really weird to see these old ideas that didn't pan out but they seemed awesome at the time and then Mm -hmm. they sucked and then you read them you're like what this was great (laughs) i feel like i have the opposite of like oh god oh no totally you you have those as well what is this an alien what (laughs) this makes no sense would you say you ever do note cards you outline you do note cards do you ever like do note cards again later for the same script oh yeah or is that just the one time? Oh, the same script. Um, I think it just starts with a base uh, group of note cards that just sort of evolves. Mm. That okay. Over time, but I don't like completely get rid of all of them and be like, we're starting new. Like I always kind of have some kind of fragments, unless it's just a complete mm. reboot of a script. Do you keep the note cards up for the entire length of the script that you're working on? Until I you're take done. them down actually after the first draft. Yeah, me too. Because like, it's like like an like an ex girlfriend or something. It's like, <laughs> I don't want to see it. I've just upgraded. <laughs> upgraded. <laughs> yes, I agree. It feels dirty <laughs> to have it up on the wall. It's like that's not that's not my script anymore because it does yeah, change. Just like it changes gone. from your outline to your note cards, it then changes from your note cards to your new outline or to your script, whatever you're going to next. And I think for TV, the way it works is you have your note cards up on the board. And when you finally lock it at the end of that week of brainstorming that episode, it's done. That's it. Those are the cards. And now you go to outline and then you'll get notes on the outline. And you almost rarely, at least in my experience, go back to the note cards. 
and you don't you don't go back to moving them around you just start now working with the outline from there on um, unless something completely dire happens and you need to re-break the episode then you go back to note cards and i think that applies for your own stuff too for movies as well yeah. unless something completely dire happens you're not going back to note cards which is weird i think that's just the way my my tooling of note cards works so one, totally one off you know it would be a really good thing to have in like final draft or highland or whatever screenwriting software there there is after you write the script the the software can actually like generate note cards for you like a digital note card thing of what you currently have i think they do sense? do that Oh, really? You can like reverse engineer where you I click think, a yeah, when you write a final draft script, for instance, because that's what I use, you can go to note card form and it will put them in what? note cards. Yeah. Check it out. The fuck But again, it doesn't, it doesn't help me because, again, the process of translating it to note card is what's helpful for me or is one of the parts that's helpful. So it's just... Yeah, but what if it's color coded? Then you can say... Oh, look at all my characters. They're over here, here. Oh, maybe I've been missing this. I, if I've been missing this feature, I got to call John August. <laughs> I got to get this Highland, uh, this, whoever runs Final Draft, we got to figure this out. We do got to figure that out. Between now and next episode, we have to dig into this. All right, can we talk about how you format your cards? Okay. I, oh, whenever, I, whenever I start these things, I just, I, I, I'm like, I just put a smiley face. And you're like, I have... <laughs> Four different categories. It's written in Elizabethan it's, English and Latin. <laughs> I will put a, a scene header of where the scene is, uh, exterior, you know, house. And then I'll put down John meets Ethan takes rabbit's foot. Mm -hmm. That's one card. And then I'll also put number one. Number two, exterior, you know, bus. John hands off rabbit's foot to shady guy, mm -hmm. whatever, you know, like that's mm -hmm. kind of how it goes. What about you? I do all that. And then. And... <laughs> oh, man. <laughs> I knew it. <laughs> On the back. And the reason why I, I sort of like um, lined and then as well as like blank or lined and lined. I could go either way, really. But essentially, both of the sides of the cards are different. So the first bit is exterior house john blah 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 but the back is sort of like all the character stuff that i want mm. to to happen like john ignores a call from his wife this is a fight that's happened before whatever like the character stuff is going on in the scene that's not the primary point of the scene the primary point is john steals the the rabbit's foot from ethan that will go on the back just to remind me what character stuff is going on let me let me just jump in here uh, this is not a lie. I will occasionally do things like that. <laughs> just, just, to, just to put it out Why are you there. copying me? <laughs> I will do exactly what you just said. <laughs> and a little more. <laughs> <laughs> All right. I think the last thing I want to bring up is, do you feel like you have to use physical 3x5 index cards for your note cards? Or is there a better, more interesting way of doing this? I'm sure there's a better way. Uh, this is a good transition into, um, well, first of all, it's just whatever works for anybody. It could be a sheet of paper that, what you know, whatever it is, people just scribble things down. I have notebooks full of beats that, for a minute, that, that's worked. But um, for, for, a, for a time, I was using, because I didn't have note cards, I was using um, 
like those big sketch pads that artists use because it was they're, oh. they, you can get them pretty big and i would yeah. just use that so again i could see everything in front of me at the same time which why is that different than a big computer i don't know but it felt different. no the, all these little things and when you have to write it with your hand you know yeah. it's like there's something a little different but dave uses uh milanote and that has note cards on it and i know that he really really enjoys it so that's his method i don't know if he uses physical note cards or what so i know that that's like there's a digital way and a digital component yeah. that i know a lot of people really like yeah, I love Milanote as well. Highly recommend using it. I've recommended it to a few people now and they all really love it because it does create digital note cards. You can color code your note cards and then you can also organize them in a really interesting way. And it's built to be complete, right? Like your Word document, like I said, is a vertical. This is this takes up your entire computer and feels like you are getting a kind of um, you know whiteboard view of everything. So take a look at yeah. that. Also on Tomb Raider and The Witcher, we used a program called Miro. Mm. Uh, so you can look at that. That does the same thing. Actually has little uh, like sticky notes, basically, that you can throw up there, which is fun. And then there's another program that TV writers use called Writer's Room, which I have never used, but is something else that has that same effect. So if you if you are maybe a lot younger than us and prefer computers than tangible things, um, there are a lot of digital resources. I want to know if any younger writers use physical note cards. Like you guys, under it the really helps, guys. I swear. It, it's not just because we're older. <laughs> it, it does really help, though. I guess it just comes up. Like, it just depends on how you've come up. And, you know, I'm sure someone swears by a typewriter. Stephen King, probably. Exactly. <laughs> All right. I'll wrap up with the quote of the day. You sit at the board and suddenly your heart leaps. Your hand trembles to pick up the piece and move it. But what chess teaches you is that you must sit at the table calmly and think about whether it's really a good idea and whether there are other better ideas. Stanley Kubrick. Whoa. Very applicable, right? Always. Kill it with the quote of the days. Please remember to rate and subscribe. Follow us on Twitter at Act2Writers or on Instagram for more awesome writing stuff. You can follow me, Tasha, at Story Thursday on Instagram or on Twitter at Tasha3.0. And me on Instagram at Josh Hallman and Joshua Hallman on Twitter. And as always, the Act 2 podcast is a production of Act 2, a network and support group for the everyday working screenwriter. This episode was edited by Paul Lundquist, music by 414 Beg, which you can find on Spotify. Mm -hmm.